Let's begin this evening by uh, turning to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. We'll see if we can get a little bit further tonight, cover a little more ground than we did last week. I noticed after um, going home that I had fallen back into my mode of only getting a few verses done per evening, and so I'll try to pick up the pace here tonight. Except we have a couple of important, actually three very important topics that are going to come up immediately, so I'm not making any promises for tonight. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Again, I'd like to begin reading from the first verse, just so we can put this in context and use that by way of review. And I'll be reading um, through verse 27, which is what I would like to get done tonight. So, hear God's word at Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw near. Else would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body did you prepare for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I am come in the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you would not, neither had pleasure therein, the which are offered according to the law. Then hath he said, Lo, I am come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest indeed stands day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, the which can never take away sins. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after he said, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart, and upon their mind also I will write them. Then he said, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Therefore, having, brothers, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and having our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, that it waver not, for he that is faithful has promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as we see the day drawing near. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness 
of fire, which shall devour the adversaries. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you tonight and ask that you would give us reverence for your holy word as we study it, that we might remember that what we see in the words of the book that is in our lap are the very words of the living God, our creator and our redeemer. We do pray that we would respond to those words accordingly, that we'd respond to them as if you in our very presence were to speak them in our ears tonight. Help us to obey these words and to understand them properly. And do forgive us for our sins and for our lack of faith. Forgive us for the ways in which we betray our Christian commitment day by day. Do receive us to your presence. Do cover us by the blood of your Son. Give us the assurance that we are acceptable because of his mediation on our behalf. For we pray in his name. Amen. Last week we began by noting that the doctrinal section, the main doctrinal section here in the middle of the book of Hebrews is followed with this word therefore, even as Paul finishes his lengthy doctrinal discussion in the book of Romans with a therefore, because doctrine must be applied. And the exhortation that is going to be given by the author of Hebrews is a tender one, it's a brotherly exhortation, and what he exhorts us to do, and his hearers in particular, is to enter boldly into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And we took some time to discuss the theology of blood again in the New Testament and why the blood of Jesus is so important for a life of prayer, why we can enter boldly into God's presence due to the blood that has been spilt on our behalf. In verse 20, the author tells us that we are entering into this holy place by a new and living way, not according to the old style of the priest, the Levitical priest of the old covenant, we are entering by a new way and one that is living because it has been opened up to us by the person who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. The one who gives us life in the coming to his Father. We come to the Father through the veil and then we have this awkward expression that is his flesh. And uh, we took some time to discuss the possibilities and you remember that I didn't take a definite stand on how to interpret that because I'm still doing my homework on it. Okay, verse 21. And having a great priest over the house of God. A great priest, that refers to the high priest, but it's more than just the high priest. It's the high priest that exceeds even what the old covenant had to offer. The greatest priest of all, Jesus Christ. Okay. You should be able to find, if you look at your Bibles tonight, three exhortations that follow the therefore of verse 19. We've seen already, one, the author says, Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Verse 22 says, Let us do something. Verse 23 says, Let us do something. And then verse 24 says, let us do something. So you see there's a threefold exhortation. If you've understood my theology, knowing that you have this boldness because of the blood of Jesus to enter into the very holy place of God through the veil, then there are three things that we should do. And what are they?
draw near, okay? Let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with, uh, from an evil conscience and having our body washed with pure water. Let us draw near. whole Bible study could be given just to that expression. If you understand the theology of this book, he says, draw near. There's something wrong in our Christian conception, something wrong in our Christian emotional perspective and outlook when we have a tendency not to draw near to God. And I'll be the first to confess I often have that tendency. I have a hesitation because of my own sin, my own inconsistency, embarrassment, perhaps fear of the very presence of God, distractions, whatever the excuse may be, there is that, uh, I think, persistent drag in our Christian life that we don't come to God. The author of Hebrews says, keep coming, draw near, come up close, which is so amazing because I know I've stressed this before, but I can't you know, get over it. The Old Covenant was a stay-at-a-distance religion. Remember that? That's why you had the Holy of Holies, and then the holy place that surrounds it or is the vestibule to it, and then the temple itself or the tabernacle. And... Um, when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, they were to put up barriers around the mountain. If even a beast were to approach, the beast had to be killed and so forth. Um, there was the image of uh, lightning and smoke and fire and, and thunders. The whole idea being, stay at a distance. And there is one, that high priest, who can finally come to the very presence of God once a year. So here the author of Hebrews has reminded us of that and how we have a better high priest. But you see, this is not just a better high priest because Jesus is better than Aaron. Aaron never took people with him into the Holy of Holies. Jesus does. Because you have this great high priest over the house of God, draw near. It's not just that Jesus can draw near, as Aaron of old might have been able to, or a high priest after him, but this high priest brings his people with him. He says, come with me. We have boldness to enter into the holy place because of what Jesus did. We do not understand nor appreciate the work of Jesus if we are prayerless people, if we are hesitant to pray, and if we are very infrequent in prayer. Look at the exhortation. He calls on you. Draw near. That's one of the ways you can demonstrate your Christian life. Pray a lot. Get close to God. Appreciate what Jesus has done. Appreciate that new covenant religion is a drawing near to God religion rather than stay at a distance. Because Jesus has opened a new and living way. And one, you know, can read that, that the way that Jesus has opened is much broader than anything the old covenant enjoyed. That old covenant had a very narrow way. Jesus has a very broad way. He says, all of you, come with Jesus within the veil. This is a repeat of an exhortation we've heard earlier in Hebrews at chapter 4, verse 16. Verse 15 in chapter 4 says, For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that has been in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author is not just repeating the exhortation. He's giving even further reason for us to draw near boldly. 
What was the first reason? Well, in chapter 4, he says, because we have a high priest that is touched with the feeling of our infirmity. It's hard sometimes to talk to people about our spiritual weaknesses and our personal faults because we tend to think, well, they'll have a hard time understanding how I can be so wicked or how I can be so you know, weak or how I can be so inconsistent. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus knows you. Jesus understands. And Jesus has gone through every temptation you have. Praise God, without sin. He hasn't fallen like you have. But Jesus understands. And so draw near boldly. You have a high priest who was incarnate. He's not just God, he's the God-man. And as the God-man, he's gone through what you've gone through. So you see, that's one reason why we draw near. Jesus is like us. He's flesh and bones. He's incarnate. He knows what we've gone through. He knows how to help us. So draw near and do it boldly. And now the author comes back and that one reason which is sufficient in itself has now been expanded tenfold. He says, because this one who understands your sins went before the presence of God for you and shed his blood. All the more then, draw near boldly. Because Jesus takes you right within the veil. He says, come with me before the presence of God. I'll stand with you. My blood secures reconciliation. My blood secures justification. My blood has brought peace with God. So the first exhortation, let us draw near. Keep drawing near. Make that a matter of your Christian living. But how does he say to draw near? With three things. Actually, with four things. Pardon me. can't even read my own notes. With four things. Let's see if we can name them. Help me. What kind of heart should we have? A true heart. Okay. What kind of faith should we have? With full assurance. What else? It's right in the text. Anybody can... Heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. And finally... Bodies washed with pure water. All of these are going to stress confidence to come into the presence of God. Going to reinforce that boldness that we should have in being prayerful. We can be prayerful because we go with a true heart in fullness of faith, with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. First of all, a true heart. Again, whole sermon right there. What is it to have a true heart? Well, how about if I ask you, what's the significance of the imagery of a double heart? Okay, double-mindedness is what? That's right, you waver, don't you? You go two ways. You're unsure of yourself. And unstable in all your ways, according to the Bible, just because of that. That, too, is included. In fact, they're related to one another. A man who does not have a heart with singleness of purpose has a deceived heart, and a heart that not only deceives himself but others, because you can't count on where he's going to be and what he's going to do. One of the greatest things in the world, I'll tell you, as a person who works in organizations, is to have somebody that you can count on because they have singleness of purpose. 
you know. They, you don't have to worry that, you know, they're going to be hot sometimes and cold other times, that they'll tell you one thing and won't do it, and then sometimes they'll just go overboard and do things really a bang-up job. No, you want somebody that's reliable, that will not mislead you, deceive you. So singleness of heart and reliability is here tied together, aren't they? Um, the Danish existentialist philosopher, who I don't ordinarily quote because... <laughs> I don't like, I like Danish people, that's all right, but <laughs> I don't like existentialist philosophers too much, but Soren Kierkegaard um, said that purity of heart is to will one thing. The true purity of heart is to have that singleness of purpose, that there's only one thing for which you're living. Now, of course, some people have purity of heart in that sense with the wrong object of their love and devotion. They will the wrong single thing. But for Christians, we should desire but one thing. Now, we could put that a lot of ways. I don't want to pretend there's only one answer to this question. But now, if I use that language of singleness of purpose, what is the one thing that we should be aiming for in our Christian lives? What, above all, should we be seeking with that singleness of heart? Anybody? Okay, you can put it in terms of the first great commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Okay, we should pray, you know, thy will be done. David? So whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It could be called the glory of God. Anybody remember Jesus? I can't hear you. Okay, in Hebrews, we look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus himself said that above all we should seek, seek first the kingdom of God. Okay, now all of these answers kind of coalesce. You have to understand the glory of God and the kingdom of God and Jesus who is the king and the, uh, so forth and so on. They all come together. But that is what we should be living for. Now, when we come to God, because Jesus opened a new and living way, we are able to come with that singleness of purpose, with true hearts. Then secondly, we come with full assurance of faith. Is that the way you pray? Boldly. Firm trust that you are accepted to God and that you can make these requests known. Well, I have days like that. I wish I had more of them. But the author says, if you understand the work of Jesus, that's what you can pray with. With firm trust. Full assurance of faith. He doesn't just say with faith. And he doesn't just say with assurance of faith. He says with full assurance of faith. Thirdly, with heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. The old covenant um, ritual is the background to this metaphor because before anyone could approach into God, was acceptable to God, they had to be sprinkled with blood. And why did they have to be sprinkled? Well, because they had evil consciences. What is an evil conscience? I'm sorry? An awareness of sin. One that is conscious of sin. You have a conscience that pricks you, right? conscience that bothers you and makes you feel guilty as an evil conscience. Of course, it's a good conscience that makes you feel bad when you do evil, but 
the expression of evil conscience means conscious of the evil in your life. This says you can come with a heart that's been sprinkled from an evil conscience, meaning that the blood of Jesus applied to you says you don't have to come with that conscience that weighs you down. And I guess this is just repeating the point, but so often that's, I have problems when I pray because I feel very guilty about what God has had to forgive me for. I need to remember my heart's been sprinkled from an evil conscience. So when I come, I can come in full assurance of faith with singleness of purpose now. And a body washed with pure water. Hmm. A body washed with pure water. Old Testament imagery. The priests were washed with water and sprinkled with blood, according to Exodus 29. And I think this is what the author is telling us. In the same way that the priests had service acceptable to God because they were washed with water and sprinkled with blood, you have hearts that have been sprinkled from an evil conscience and bodies washed with water. Christ's blood sprinkled upon us takes away an evil conscience uh, we've already seen this in Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 13. If I can remind you of that, the author says, um, speaking of the, uh, the, the first tabernacle, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect. Then verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling them that have been defiled, sanctify into the cleanness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The conscience was not cleansed by the rituals of the old covenant, but the conscience is cleansed now. We have hearts that have been sprinkled from medieval conscience, and we have bodies that have been washed with water. Not only were the priests washed with water in the Old Testament as part of the Levitical ritual, but the prophets, the Old Testament, spoke of a day of washing that was coming. Do you remember? In Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Let's turn back for a moment there. Ezekiel 36 at the 25th verse. God says, And I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, that you should keep, that you should keep mine ordinances and do them. God says, The day is coming when I will sprinkle water on you. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit in you. And then you'll walk in my statutes. The author of Hebrews says we've been sprinkled with that water. Our bodies have been washed. Titus 3 verses 5 and 6 uses the same imagery. Not by works done in righteousness which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel had said, God will wash you with water and put his spirit within you. So here we have the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Ephesians 5, verse 26.
speaking of Christ's love for the church and how he gave himself up for it, Paul says, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word. We who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit have been sprinkled with clean water by God. And Jesus, having died for the church, cleansed it, made it pure in the eyes of God. Or John, the third chapter, verse 5. Turn back to the Gospel of John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except one be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I really appreciate the way the imagery of the Bible, you know, you can run these threads through the Bible. It's amazing. Water and Spirit. See? Referred to in Ezekiel, picked up by Jesus, by Titus. I mean, Paul writing to Titus and to the Ephesians. And then one more, 1 Peter 3, 21. 1 Peter 3, 21. Which also, after a true likeness, does now save you, even baptism, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the interrogation of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says, when you were baptized, you were saved, not because the outward body was washed, that isn't what did it, but because you have a clean conscience before God now, the interrogation of a conscience that stands right before God. So, first thing, author of Hebrews says, you understand the theology of this book? Draw near. Draw near with singleness of purpose. Draw near with full assurance, firm trust. Draw near knowing that an evil conscience has been taken away and that you've been washed clean and regenerated by God. But then secondly, what's he say we should do? Verse 23. Don't everyone rush to say it at the same time. John? That's right. Not The first thing you do is you keep drawing near to God. And if you keep drawing near to God, notice what follows from that? You hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Hold fast, firmly, steadfastly, and without wavering. This repeats another exhortation from earlier part of the epistle, chapter 4, verse 14. Having then a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because we have Jesus as our high priest who has passed through the heavens. What does that mean? He's ascended to the right hand of God, remember? Because you have that kind of a high priest, hold your confession fast. Now the author repeats it. By the way, before we turn back, chapter 4, verse 14, gives the first exhortation to hold fast our confession and it's also right there in that same paragraph that he says let us draw near boldly one gets the idea that these things are connected in the author's mind a confession without wavering and a life of prayer that's bold these go together because he repeats the two you know in two verses right next to each other later at the next place where he gives a, a batch of exhortations The epistle of Hebrews puts quite an emphasis on the Christian faith as a life of hope. 
Let me demonstrate that for you. I want to go through the epistle and show you how often the word hope is set forth, more than any other book in the New Testament, I believe. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is the Son over his house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast our boldness and the glorying of our hope firm unto the end. Chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire that each one of you may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope, even to the end. Verses 18 and 19 of that chapter. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, which we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, entering into that which is within the veil. Remember, that's the imagery of our prayer life. We enter within the veil with Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, and a bringing in there upon of a better hope through which we draw near unto God. Verse 22. By so much also hath Jesus become the surety of a better covenant. Chapter 11, verse 1. Well known to all of you. Now, faith is... The assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not yet seen. Chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They didn't receive the promises, but they greeted them from afar. They died in faith. Looking forward to that. Then verses 39 and 40 of chapter 11. And these all, having had witness born to them through their faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing concerning us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The epistle repeatedly then sets forth the idea of hope. But now the problem is that the English word hope doesn't say it. Because hope for us means wishful thinking, doesn't it? I hope I get a fire truck for Christmas. That sentence makes perfectly good sense to us because that's our concept of hope. Hope is something we'd like to have happen, but oh golly, who knows whether it ever will. That isn't the idea of hope in the Bible. Hope means assured confidence. See, I have a hope sure and steadfast. I have an anchor of the soul. I know that something is going to take place, that I want to take place, it's good for me. The author of Hebrews keeps putting that forth, hope. Christian faith is a life of hope. And I guess this is the night for the pastor to confess his sins, but not only do I have trouble in my prayer life because I don't have that full assurance and I don't draw near in the way that I should, but I often lose hope. I don't ever lose longing. I don't lose desire. I want things to go well, but you know, every once in a while I just feel like, Things aren't going that well. Or, you know, we we just don't have the kind of conviction, the anchor that, you know, the author of Hebrews says we would if we would concentrate on the theology that he's taught us. What is the basis of unfaltering hope? Notice that it's not just hope, but it's an unwavering hope. These are high standards the author sets. He says you should live a life of faith that translates into hope, assured confidence, and in a confidence that doesn't waver. Does your confidence ever waver? 
Well, then you're not enjoying the full blessing of the Christian life available to you through the truth of God's word. How can we have unwavering hope? Do you have it because, well, let me give you a few, a few possibilities. Your parents raised you in the Christian faith, and on the basis of their word, you have this unwavering confidence in God. Sound like a good foundation for hope? Mm-mm, don't work. Many of you didn't have parents who did that, but even those of you who did, your parents are not a firm foundation. How about this? Dr. Bonson has debated an atheist and other people, and so on the basis of Dr. Bonson's debate skills, you can have unwavering hope. No. Let's make it better. You've done the apologetical work for yourself. You've, you've gone out and you've searched for the evidence. You know all the arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and now you have this unwavering hope in God. Is that right? Now, in fact, some of the shakiest people I've ever met are people who thought that was how they could be sure and they found out that there's something more to the Christian life than just apologetical arguments. Well, look in the Bible. What is the basis for the Christian's unwavering hope? Anyone see it? I'm sorry? Exactly. The reason why you don't ever have to waver in your hope is because the one who promised you is faithful. The basis of my Christian hope is the promise of God. And because God said it, nothing can shake it. My parents assured me of it. If the best debater I've ever seen assured me of it, if my own research assured me of it, it could still waver. But not now, because it's God who gave the promise. And on the basis of God's promise, I don't ever have to doubt. His is the only word that's beyond challenge. After all, who can speak back to God? Who can bring anything to God's charge? Can God lie? See, that, that may surprise you. There are some things that you can do that God can't, like sin. I can lie, God can't. And so when God makes a promise, I don't ever have to worry about being fulfilled. Because he who promised is faithful. Interestingly, in 1 Peter 3.15, when Peter tells us to be prepared to defend our faith, do you notice what he says we are to defend? Look at uh, 1 Peter 3.15. I know the language is familiar to you, but we need to pay attention to the exact terminology used by Peter. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, being ready always to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason concerning the what? The hope that is in you. He doesn't say concerning the faith that is in you. He could have. Or concerning the truth that you proclaim. But Peter conspicuously chooses the word hope. That assured, unwavering confidence in the promise of God. Be ready to give an answer to any man who challenges that reason for it. Okay, third part of the exhortation, verse 24. First of all, draw near to God. Draw near confidently, full assurance, heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Secondly, the confession of your hope should not waver because God is the one who gave promise. So here we have a prayerful Christian. We have a bold Christian whose confidence, confession of faith is not wavering. And then finally, what are we supposed to do? Verse 24. 
That's right. Consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. The Christian life is not a life lived in solitary. You know, the idea of this really uh, super spiritual Christian who lives the Christian life by having that confession of hope, really draws near to God, is prayerful and so forth, that's not a complete picture. Because you may have confidence before God to pray, and you may not waver in your confidence about his hope, but the Bible says you must also be doing something with respect to your Christian brothers. It's not a tag-along idea. These all run together. Where do I sometimes get the reassurance that I need about these things from my Christian brothers? When I start wavering, when I start wandering, when I start worrying, you ever do those things? Coming to church helps. You better believe it does. Don't ever think that coming to church is just a ritual we go through. It serves a very important purpose. But it's not just coming to church, it's also having a life, a body life, so that the people in the congregation you're close to and you can rely on. Now, you can rely on them, but here the exhortation is for you to do something to them. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. It's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament because it doesn't seem like the verb is the right one. To provoke them? I provoke people, but I don't think it's always to love and good works. I sometimes provoke people to be irritable or angry or to be hard or to be harsh or something like that. Here he says, if you understand the theology that has gone on in this epistle, if this is really sunk deep, and if you have a life of prayer, you're drawing near to God, and you have confidence and hope in the promises of God, then what are you going to do towards God's people? You're going to always be stirring them up, always stirring them up to make them more loving people, always stirring them up that they'll do good works. I have a spiritual exercise that would be valuable for you to do, except that I'm afraid it might depress you, as it depresses me sometimes. Sit down and just make a list of ways in which this week I've provoked people to love and good works. How has my influence helped people to be more loving? Well, I can think of ways in which my influence has helped people to become a little more bitter cutting off that guy on the freeway or, you know, being harsh with somebody on the phone or, you know, losing my temper with my children or whatever it may be. And I can think of ways in which I provoke people. But I should be able every week, shouldn't I, to make a list of how my Christian life has really incited a more loving attitude in the part of my neighbor. And my neighbor now is doing even more good works than he or she would have done. If you're not doing that, my guess is you're probably not praying as much as you should and your confidence in the promises of God is not as unwavering as it should be. Because a life of prayer and a life of confidence in the Word of God is going to issue forth in that kind of influence in the lives of others. You can't keep it to yourself. The good influence is going to overflow. So you'll provoke people to love. Interesting. We have one exhortation related to faith, right? Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith. We have an exhortation related to hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not. And now one related to love. Let us provoke one another unto love and good works. Faith, hope, and love. Do you think that's by accident? Three Christian virtues, right? 
Where do we see this? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 13 at the 13th verse. Obviously, this is the chapter on love. But now abideth faith, hope, love, these three. And here Paul says the greatest of these is love. Elsewhere, Paul says the greatest is hope. Gives indication elsewhere that faith is. So don't be misled uh, that he really has a hierarchy. The point is, each in its own way has a priority. Each has an importance. But what, what are the three virtues you can summarize the Christian life? Faith, hope, and love. And the author of Hebrews uses the same uh, threefold breakdown of the Christian life. I don't think it's by accident. The Holy Spirit brings a real coherence and continuity in the Word of God. Okay, we understand these exhortations. We should be provoking one another to love. We should be confident in our Christian faith. We should be drawing near to God in prayer, always. Verse 25 tells us that the other side of that is that we don't forsake our own assembling together. We don't forsake our own assembling of ourselves together. Dividing yourself from the congregation of God's people goes hand in hand with selfishness. If you wish to provoke people to love and good works, then you don't abandon the gathering of yourselves together for worship. I think I hinted already last week when I said we were going to get to this verse. This is a very important verse, especially in the late 20th century for counseling people. People who see no importance to the life of the church tend not to be the sorts of individuals described in these three exhortations demonstrating faith, hope, and love in their lives. They aren't people who provoke others to love and good works. Maybe it's an accident, but I don't think so. I see that almost to the person, I can tell you, in the time that I've been in the pastorate in one way or another in various places, when we've had to go to talk to people about the inconsistency of their attendance at church or their wanting to withdraw from the church, they are people who do not have a reputation for provoking to love and good works. People who do not have a reputation for a life of prayer and confident confession of the hope that God has given us in Scripture. Don't ever think that a desire to withdraw from the congregation or to not go to church is just a natural sort of thing. There's something wrong in your spiritual life when that happens. Albert? Yes. Yeah, and I'm going to build on this. I'm, I'm starting at the most elementary ground level of understanding of this, but then I'm going to build on that. that as a matter of fact, there were some Christians who were with, uh, refusing to gather together to worship with the other Christians because their tendency is to now to compromise that faith that they had in Jesus and now to fall back into the ways of Judaism. And that's why right after this verse, the next thing you read of is, if we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for sins. The author has one of his famous um, warnings about apostasy. Okay, so in the historical setting here, those who were withdrawing from the Christian assembly were on the verge of, or actually guilty of, apostasy from the truth. And he says of them, there is no more sacrifice for sin for them. 
Now, we can't make a one-for-one -one application of that. I don't mean to say when I have to call on somebody because they've decided to leave the church or they aren't attending regularly anymore that I should tell them, well, you're an apostate. You know, because in that historical setting, the withdrawing was probably motivated in most cases by this desire to fall back into Judaism. We know the setting. Uh, we've seen it elsewhere in the epistle. We've talked about this. But even though I can't make a one-for-one -one application, I can certainly suggest there is that danger that a withdrawing from the Christian assembly may in fact be a withdrawing from the presence of God himself. And the people usually don't like to look at what they're doing, you know, fully. Say you have a, a father who um, smacks the hand of his little one-year-old baby because the baby reached out and, and um, pushed over the preserves on the breakfast table. Now, how would you describe what that father did? You have a father who smacks the hand of his baby because the baby made a mess at the breakfast table. I'll tell you this, you ask the father what he did, and you ask the mother what he did, and you're going to get two different descriptions. Okay. We have that tendency. <laughs> As the grandmother. Okay, we probably get even three there, okay? When you go to somebody who is living a life with a guilty conscience and withdrawing from the congregation, and probably withdrawing from the presence of God, they're probably not going to say, yes, I'm apostatizing. I'm withdrawing from the presence of God. No, they're going to keep things, what, on the surface level of, um, no, I'm, I'm just looking for a better church, or, you know, I'm, I, it's too far to go, or I'm just tired of this, or the preaching doesn't satisfy me. I mean, it's all out here. But dealing with heart problems, you can't expect that person to stand up and say, no, I'll tell you what's going on. I'm just not sure I want to be a Christian anymore. And so we have to go and call on people and say, you need to be aware of what this passage tells you. If you forsake your own assembling together, as the custom of some is, it may be that you're sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth. Don't play around with this divisiveness within God's people, among God's people. The word for assembling here is um, the same word from which we get synagogue, not synagoguing together, uh, which I think is interesting because the people to whom this uh, warning is being delivered, was being delivered, were people who had come out of the synagogue. They had stopped worshiping God through the Jewish synagogue and now we're worshiping in the Christian synagogue. And the author says, you've stopped synagoguing together. And as Elri has pointed out, we've all, we see that this is now the custom of some to do that. He says, instead of forsaking your assembling together, you should be exhorting one another. Okay, and now we're going to have a real tough time. What does this last phrase mean? Exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, you shouldn't be forsaking going to church. You shouldn't be forsaking the Christian synagogue. You shouldn't be forsaking that assembling of yourself together. You should be exhorting one another. Exhorting how? To provoke to love and good works. You see, it ties in with what we've already been talking about. But he says, all the more that should be because you see the day drawing near. What day? Pat? I have another one. I 
Oh, I wouldn't count on it if you don't know where it came from. Okay. Yes. Let me tell you what a, a number of commentators say about this. They say the day means the day of Jesus Christ, as you see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Well, there's a problem if you take that interpretation, and that's that um, the author is saying something is about to happen that is adding even more impetus to my exhortation that you not abandon the Christian synagogue. And some say, oh, well, what's about to happen is that Jesus is going to return. Did Jesus return? No. And so what you do now is you have to take a second step as a commentator and say this, the day, refers to the day of Jesus coming in glory to judge the world. Since he didn't come in the lifetime of the hearers of this book, then we have another you know, layer of interpretation, and that is every Christian needs to remember that Whenever you live in history, the day is drawing nearer. We have this kind of general truth that since Jesus is definitely coming, every day of history puts us one day closer to that, right? Well, that's true. I don't deny that. And nor do I deny that the, uh, the coming of Christ should be an impetus to good works that should do something to our Christian life. What I have a real hard time seeing is that that's what the author is saying here. The author is saying here... Don't forsake your assembling together, as some are now in the custom of doing. Exhort one another, all the more because you see the day drawing near. Here's another possibility. The day here, the day of the Lord, may refer to what is often in the Bible called the day of the Lord, and that is Jesus' return to destroy Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus, when he was carrying his cross to Golgotha, saw women weeping on the side of the road he said don't weep for me weep for yourselves because if they do this when the tree is green what will happen when it's dry in a cryptic language what jesus said is you don't realize that the day of my judgment is here but the day of yours is going to be much worse at his trial he said to those who were tormenting him you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven jesus says this is not the last time you're going to encounter me. And when you encounter me again, I'll be coming in judgment. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, speaks of the terrible things that are going to come upon Jerusalem. And he says that all these things will happen in the lifetime of his hearers. That within that generation, these things will take place. Now, if the book of Hebrews is written to especially Jewish converts to Christianity who are now wavering in their faith and being tempted to fall back into Judaism where there is no more sacrifice for sin, remember, because Jesus has done away with that. And if they are tempted to not come together in the Christian assembly to fall back to the Jewish synagogue, then isn't it adding impetus to the exhortation he gives them to remember the day that you have been told of is coming? Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And when Jerusalem is destroyed, then there won't be any doubt in anybody's mind of the worthlessness of those Levitical sacrifices and of the fact that the shell of Judaism has passed away in its religious significance. So it's my own conviction that though the author doesn't go into detail, that it's much more likely, given the historical setting, 
and the fact that we don't have to go into a second level of explanation as to why the day didn't come, that the day referred to here is the day of Jesus returning on the clouds to destroy Jerusalem, which is what he did, and the Jewish faith was then publicly demonstrated to have been um, rejected by God. Ellery. Um, would that also be what was referred to when Jesus said, Watch therefore, for you know not the day that the Lord returns? You need to um, identify in the Gospels which of those exhortations you're referring to, because there are many that are similar to that. Um, some refer to Jesus returning in his second advent. But, uh, well, I'll tell you, let's turn to Matthew 24 quickly. I think we can do this in a minute or two. In Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, verse 29 especially, well, we have the abomination of desolation in verse 15 and 16 referred to. Jesus says, when you see this happening, flee you know, unto the mountains. We know that this is what Christians did when the Roman soldiers began to surround Jerusalem. The Christians fled. They got out of there before the temple was uh, desolated and so forth. He speaks of this terrible uh, day of great tribulation, verse 21. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and so forth. Verse 30, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Notice he doesn't say, then shall appear the sign in heaven. Then shall appear the sign, that which points to the fact that the Son of Man is in heaven. He had said he will come upon the clouds, that he will be exalted. He will be vindicated over his persecutors. Jesus says, and then shall appear the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven. And all the tribes of earth shall mourn, and so forth. And shall see him coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And then verse 34, verily, he reemphasizes this, truly I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. Jesus says, you're going to start seeing signs of things that are going to take place, and the judgment of God is coming upon Jerusalem. God will leave Israel desolate, and it's going to happen in this generation. And then notice how he continues. Verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. They were days when they were eating and drinking, giving in marriage, until Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus says, there is one coming you need to worry about. Plenty of signs of it. All these things happening you should know about. And the great tribulation will be involved. But that will be in this generation. But then there's going to be another coming where you can't time it at all. You're going to be going about your daily lives, eating and drinking, entering in marriage. And even as people were not aware of the judgment of God until what? The rain began to fall. Jesus says, on that day, people will not know the judgment's there until it is there. There will be no precursors. I mean, that's, these are pretty obvious words. Now, there are plenty of, you know, Christian groups in our day that have done a butchering job on Matthew 24. But just look at the, the exegetical and interpretive 
uh, guidelines Jesus gives you. He comes down to verse 34 and he says, this generation shall not pass till all these things be accomplished. And then he changes the subject. Now there's a day coming that no one can predict when he shall return. Yes, Ken. What is a generation? Well, when he says this generation, he means the lifetime of his hearers. In the same way that if I said, before this generation passes, we will have um, a Christian president. Okay, now that, that probably is a false prophecy, but I mean, what I'm saying in this prophecy, what the, what the phrases mean is that, you know, what would you take? The youngest person here, if you want to, you know, apply this in a, in a positivistic way and say, before that person dies. Now, a generation, as many people would say, is in Jewish accounting, roughly 40 years. Jesus doesn't say a generation, he says this generation. So the best we can do is, he says, before my hearers pass away. Okay, it's not going to be more than, what, 40, 50, 60 years. It turns out that it was just about 40 years. Why don't you read that? It talks about the righteous blood shed upon the earth shall be that's right Jesus says and all these things are going to come upon this generation God will avenge the blood of the martyrs and of course of his own son on this generation and um, what do premillennialists do with this can anyone, can anyone tell me I mean it's, it's just amazing for its artificiality Willie Yeah, that's one of two approaches. One is to say it's really a future generation he's talking about. When the clock of prophecy starts ticking, then within one generation all these things will happen. Of course, that is a little artificial because Jesus does say what? This generation. So there's another possibility, and that's to not take generation in the ordinary way, but to... Yeah, that this race will not pass away. That is, the Jewish race will not pass away before all these things happen. Which really takes the punch out of what he's saying, that you can count on this happening sometime before the Jewish race passes away. I'm sorry? The generation of the church. I must admit I'm not familiar with that approach. The Israel of God, I see. He's talking about judgment upon these people. And this is supposed to be judgment upon the church generation then? That's, again, awfully convoluted. Uh, uh, yes, Antoinette. That means that God will send messengers to the boundaries of the inhabited world who will start gathering in those that he has chosen to be his people. God will start gathering in the Gentiles before Jerusalem has been rejected. What's that? Yes. Yeah, that God is sending messengers. You see, the whole point is God takes the kingdom of God away from Israel and gives it to a nation producing the fruit thereof. He has rejected the Jews and the Gentiles are now coming into the church. I will send my angels. The word angel misleads us. We think of people with wings, right? But angel means messenger in, uh, in the Greek. And although it can refer to an, what we call an angelic messenger, 
It, it, I, there I think it just means I will send my messengers out and the Gentiles will start being gathered in. The elect from the four corners of the earth will start coming in and then Jerusalem will be destroyed as God's sign that he's given up on them. Okay, we'd have to look at Luke 12. We're a little late now, but I think the point is that the second coming of Jesus cannot be timed. But the first coming of Jesus, uh, the first, not the... Um, incarnational coming, but the coming of Jesus in judgment on Jerusalem did have many precursors that Jesus laid down. Frank? Um, getting back to Hebrews 10, I, uh, verse 24, I, if my memory doesn't fail me, the word translated provoke in the original is very intense, but it's cross-use loss. That's right. You know, the, driving each other into a cross provoking we are so worked up it's like we go and we shake people and say get more loving <laughs> now of course that imagery will stick in your mind because it, it clashes that usually doesn't make people more loving when you shake them like that but you're right it's a very intense verb okay Yeah, it's another one. That's another passage supporting the idea that the coming of Jesus, demonstrating his dominion, coming in his kingdom, is that he destroyed Jerusalem, even as he threatened he would do. Right. Well, yeah, we've seen three passages that destroy that idea, but it is a pervasive idea. And the thing that really kind of gets to me is that those who hold that theological conviction will cast dispersions upon our commitment to the Word of God because we don't agree with them. I mean, that, that never ceases to amaze me that, that dispensationalists will suggest that I'm a liberal somehow because I don't agree with that interpretation. And yet, they're just the most common sense plain reading of the New Testament at least makes it awkward to be a dispensationalist. Maybe they are right. I don't think they are. But if they are right, they have a lot of explaining to do. See, the shoe ought to be on the other foot. We ought to say, aren't you imposing a preconceived system and, you know, uh, forcing that on the Bible like a Procrustean bed? Because look at these, these verses. I've been trying to put an end to this for about seven minutes now because we're over time. And I, you people just won't put your hands down. I know you won't stop. So two more. And then I'm not Mr. Meany if I, okay. David Arnold, and then we'll have Pat. Yeah, I think what Jesus is saying there, to be very honest, is Peter, it's none of your business. And he doesn't commit himself one way or another to the time of his coming. Pat. Yes. The assembling of yourselves together is a specific reference to the Christian assembly for worship, yes. I would say that uh, it's possible for people to emotionally and, and really withdraw from the life of the congregation in other ways as well, but the reference there is to the synagogue to the coming together for worship assembly. Well, we didn't get as far as I want. I also wanted to talk about apostasy and the unforgivable sin tonight, but I didn't make it.
Next week we'll talk about that. We'll begin there. But please notice the connection. The author says, you're forsaking the Christian assembly for the Jewish synagogue, but I warn you, there is no more sacrifice for sin there. Okay, so it all ties together. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. And John, would you lead us?